Uh, imagine the scene. Uh, they're in the car and they're arguing like an old married couple. As usual, directions are the problem. The slip road was approaching fast. Do we take it? Don't we take it? And so the driver decides, I know what I will do. And up comes that little hashed area with the bollards in it. And the car comes to a nice controlled stop, just nicely there, in the little wedge between the slip road and the motorway racing past. It's all right. We haven't gone the wrong way. We've got a foot in both camps. Uh, You'd never do it, would you, of course. (laughs) You'd never do it. But somehow, every day, we do, don't we? How often do we say, I'm in two minds about this or the other? How often do we realize that in our minds, we are double-minded when it comes to trusting the Lord? It may be one of the biggest problems of our day today. It's probably been one of the biggest problems of the human race since time long past. And so it was in the days of the kings. Who would they serve? The Lord or Baal? Israel decided, it's okay, we'll have both. A foot in two camps. Now some of you will say this morning, yeah, I mean, that's surely that's fine. It's good to be broad-minded. Good to have an open mind. But it's not good to believe in everything and anything. And it's never good to believe in a made-up God, is it? The Christian philosopher G.K. Chesterton famously once said, when a person ceases to believe in and trust the Christian God, they won't believe in nothing, they'll believe in anything. Israel was such a case in point. Their double-mindedness had led to disaster. There was such evil in the land, we didn't speak of it. And like the car, parked between the slipway and the motorway, they were in danger. The Lord was warning them. Last week we saw Elijah turn up, and he has come to confront a double-minded people. He announced, if you remember from last time, a drought. This was God's warning. Turn back. It was also war on the false god, Baal. Don't trust him. He's no god at all. He can't even bring a storm. I'm the one in charge of the rain. Trust in the Lord alone. That was Elijah's ambition, to prize the people's hearts from idols. To move the people away from their doubts and their double-mindedness and to place their trust in God alone. That was Elijah's great desire. And that should be our great desire as we come to this passage this morning, to have our hearts prized away from idols to lose our double-mindedness. Elijah's ministry began in private, and we saw that in chapter 17. Now it comes in public. Elijah is coming back to the nation of Israel. He's to go back to the king and confront the people. Now, two things we'll see this morning. Firstly, we're going to see doubt in the first half of the passage. Secondly, we're going to see the people move from doubt to confidence. So look with me then first at the doubt that we see in the kingdom, the doubt in the land. Look at me first at verse 1. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to King Ahab, Elijah, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab, and the famine was severe in the land. Three years have passed. Three years of drought. 
This was a warning of the Lord. Turn back to me. I don't know whether you um, get lovingly nagged at home, prodded or poked. Do you think you'd need to be prodded or poked for three years to change your mind on something? The people needed three years. (laughs) Three years. They must have been pretty thick-headed. They must have been full of a lot of doubt. But we figure here things must be beginning to change since the Lord is now relenting, right? He tells Elijah, go to the king and it'll start to rain. We wonder, we hope, we pray. Maybe the people have repented. Uh, But don't speak too soon because the truth is far from that. This first half of the passage gives us the, the backstory to the contest we're about to see. And it shows us all sorts of doubt. Elijah is on the way to see King Ahab. And now the camera angle uh, spins to what's going on in the court of King Ahab. We find out he's got a servant called Obadiah. And in these last three years of drought, Obadiah has been on a secret rescue mission. See, for these last three years, people haven't been repenting. It turns out what's been going on is murder. Uh, Jezebel, the king's queen, a zealot of Baal, has been murdering the Lord's prophets. And the king's done nothing. But Obadiah, Obadiah has been hiding them. He is like, uh, if you will, the French resistance in Nazi-occupied France, hiding the Jews. That's, that's Obadiah. It's, uh, it's, it's a great thing to see, isn't it? And, and, and then we're told, look, verse 5, Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find um, grass and save the horses and the mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab, King Ahab, went in one direction to look for water by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. Do you see the picture? The prophets of the Lord have been being murdered. King Ahab has been looking the other way. And kings in the Bible were supposed to be shepherds. They were supposed to protect their people. Well, not so this king. He cares only for his wealth and his horses. I'm sure he'll claim the name of king of Israel, king of the Lord's people, but he'll happily tolerate Jezebel and her golden calves. He'll happily tolerate her intolerance of the Lord's prophets. Just God forbid no one touch my horses. God forbid my horses die. See what the land was like in those days. Here's it right at the top of the kingdom, doubt, double-mindedness. The king cares so much for his horses and his wealth that he'd look the other way as evil is done. It's worth saying, isn't it? Funny how often money does that, isn't it? You'll look away at evil if it pays right. The king who should be a shepherd is looking the other way. There's true double-mindedness, isn't there? No wonder the Lord said, didn't the Lord say this? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. We see it here in the king, don't we? The double-mindedness. It's awful. There's double-mindedness and doubt in the king. There's also double-mindedness in this servant, in this Obadiah, who looks so good. Um, uh, So look at what happens next. Obadiah is on his horse-water-finding mission. And come with me to verse 7. 
As Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord, Elijah? And Elijah answered him, It is I. Go tell your lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, Wonderful. No, he didn't. (laughs) He said, verse 9, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hands of Ahab to kill me? Here's the Lord's prophet, Elijah. And Obadiah says, what are you doing? Now, (laughs) Obadiah's a good guy, so this takes some explaining. It seems that Elijah, during these last three years, has been a little bit like Leonardo DiCaprio in that film, Catch Me If You Can. Um, Everywhere people have tried to find Elijah, he's just slipped out of their grasp. And the FBI are looking for him. The wanted posters are up everywhere looking for Elijah. It's so bad. The local government in, in, in every province have to sign a letter saying, we swear on our grandmother's lives that Elijah isn't here. That's how bad it is. And Obadiah thinks, I have served the Lord these last three years. But where has Elijah been? How can I trust him? Maybe he's doing one of his usual things where he'll say, I'm over here. And then he'll vanish. <laughs> And I'll be left carrying the can. The king will kill me. I'll have announced he's here and he won't be there because he's been disappearing for three years. You can see his point. You can see why Obadiah cares, <laughs> cares about what's going on here. He's worried. You know, he, he thinks, I, I've been doing the Lord's work. I have been saving the Lord's people. Have I not risked enough? Have I not given up enough? I know you want me to do this and I'm going to die for it. Reality starts to hit home as we see this, right? Obadiah has been serving the Lord in the court of a wicked king. And even he is in two minds about whether to trust Elijah or whether to trust the Lord. He is one of the best servants in all the land. And even he's got his doubts. There is real doubt in the Lord in this place, real double-mindedness. It's not a problem we can easily slip away from, is it? It affects all of us. I do love, by the way, the fact here that we get these two figures, Elijah and Obadiah. Elijah is here, isn't he, providing pressure from the outside on the king. Obadiah is on the inside, serving and saving quietly on the inside. There's two different people serving the Lord in two different ways. It's rather nice to see, isn't it? Isn't that an encouragement to us? But even that doesn't mean Obadiah won't have to stick his neck out eventually, and indeed he does. Elijah says he won't disappear this time, and so the meeting is arranged. And we see it there in verse 17. Three years have passed since Elijah announced the drought, and he gets to King Ahab, and what does does Ahab say? When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, "Is, is it you, you, you troubler of Israel? In a sense, maybe the Bible writer has left out some of the expletives. Um, You'll get that sense. (laughs) He's not happy, is he? But Elijah answers, doesn't he? I have not troubled Israel, but you have. You and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Again, look, we see the the problem of doubt in the land. The king himself does not realize that it is he who's the troubler of Israel. He is the one who has led the people astray. But he doesn't have a clue. And so look, verse 19, Elijah takes control of the situation. Now, therefore, King Ahab, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. It's time for the contest. 
And so Ahab, verse 20, sent to all the people of Israel, gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Notice the response. And the people did not say a word. The scene is quite spectacular. Elijah and the prophets are up on this big mountain, and underneath there's a huge plain. There's probably a million people, maybe, as many as that, of the nation, stood at the bottom looking up at Elijah. And Elijah lays it on thick, right? You've been double-minded. Stop flip-flopping around. Make a choice. If the Lord is God, follow him. And of all those people gathered there, what do they do? They don't say a word. Do you see the doubt? Do you see the double-mindedness? They don't know what to do. Such is their, their doubt and the, by the crippling indecision. So Elijah suggests a contest by fire. Two altars, two sacrificial bulls, two stacks of stone, two sets of firewood. 450 prophets of Baal on one side, just Elijah on the other. The setting, Mount Carmel. It's the home stadium of Baal. And what's to happen? That is to all be arranged, apart from one thing, the fire. The one who is truly God will provide the fire. Will it be Baal on the one hand? Will it be the Lord? That is Elijah's proposal. Look how the people respond. Look at verse 24. What do they say? And all the people answered, good idea. Good idea. It's, well, what a wonderful idea, Elijah. I mean, we don't know who's God. That'd be, that'd be really helpful. Thank you so much, Elijah. Good idea. Now, I wonder if you can see how crazy that kind of response is here. We have had three years of drought. Elijah, the prophet of God, announced the judgment of God, the warning of God. For three years there has been a drought, and all because of Elijah and the word of the Lord that was with him. Surely they'd have maybe started thinking, hmm, maybe Baal is a failure. Maybe that storm God really is a nonsense since he can't do anything in three years. Maybe there's something to Elijah and that God. Our God. I thought maybe they, maybe, they, maybe they could have thought about the drought and thought big weather event kind of things. Wasn't there something about plagues and the Nile turned to blood and the frogs and the lice and the flies and the pestilence and the boils and the hails and the locusts and the darkness and the death and the rescue of the first one? Isn't this a bit like that? Not to mention the parting of the Red Sea, the crossing of the Jordan, the conquering of the promised land, the provision of a king in a temple and the glory cloud pleasance of the Lord in the temple. Surely they don't really need this contest. <laughs> but the Lord's going to give it to them. They want more. The Lord had done enough, but they still didn't trust him. Now, Baalism had its attractions, okay? A Baal worship was very um, attractive. It was sanctioned by the royal family. <laughs> it was sanctioned by the powerful. 
your boss was probably a Baal worshipper. So it kind of did you well to do the same. And Baal worship was traditional. It was old. It was the, the done thing. Why don't we just do the done thing around here? That's what we do. That's okay, isn't it? It seems so relevant too. Uh, Baal provided fertility and harvest and rain. How often have we trusted other things instead of the Lord because it seemed more relevant? And it was sensual and it was an experience. If you went to the Baal shrine, the thought was if you copulated enough with enough of the shrine prostitutes, you'd give Baal copulating thoughts and then would come the rain. People thought it was good. But it was made up. It was a nonsense. It was rubbish. The people doubted the creator God in favor of something creative. And they are in two minds about who to trust. The king is crippled in doubt. The best of the servants is crippled in doubt. And the people are like dumbfounded. How terrible double-mindedness is. It may not be dressed up the same way today, but it is still just as prevalent, isn't it? Today, this day, I wonder if you're in two minds. Do I trust the Lord? Or do I need to trust my money and my plans and my ideas about the future? I say I trust the Lord, but... This is the done thing about relationships, and I'd be such an idiot if I didn't do it. That's what everyone does. I trust the Lord, but you've got to play that game, haven't you? The people were in two minds, and this day, many of us are in two minds in different ways. And here comes Elijah to confront. If the Lord is God, then follow him. If the Lord is God, then follow him. If he is the God, then give everything up and do what he says and go with him. You'd be fools not to believe in the creator God and then live for him. Like the widow of last week. So there's doubt. Then comes the contest. Then comes the confidence. The confidence. And we see it first, I think, in Elijah. Elijah lets the prophets of Baal go first. Isn't that nice? He says, you're more people. You can go first in the contest. I thought it was good when um, England, uh, uh, England won the toss and were batting first in the ashes. We'll see whether that was good or not. Um, but normally it's nice to go first. And Elijah says, I'm not worried about that. I might go first, might not go. I don't, I don't. You guys go first. Elijah's pretty confident. And he's so confident, in fact, you notice that when the prophets of Baal are struggling, Elijah begins to mock them. That's the kind of thing that goes on in a football match, isn't it? You go one nil up, and you start singing, you're rubbish, you're rubbish, you're rubbish, right? Only problem is, if they score two more, they start singing at you, you're not singing anymore. You want to be pretty sure you're going to win when you start singing, right? And Elijah's like that. He's pretty confident. Baal is losing. He's not worried about them. He's confident he would even to mock them. And look at the mocking. It's there in verse 27. At noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud to Baal. For he is a god, isn't he? Either he is musing. Maybe he's relieving himself. And maybe he's gone on a journey. Or perhaps he's asleep and you need to wake him up. Elijah mocks them. Because actually these were things that people used to think. If Baal didn't answer you, maybe he was on a journey. And Elijah just turns the screw and says, this is your stupid thinking. 
Let me just prod that where it goes. Let me just show you how foolish this is. You might think Elijah's being unkind, but one proverb in the Bible says, answer a fool according to his folly, or otherwise he'll be wise in his own eyes. It seems that the Bible says it's okay to point out stupidity. There may be times when using a bit of satire, as it were, or irony, is a good thing to do. Uh, Maybe that's one for us to discuss maybe a little bit more in growth groups this week. That'd be a good incentive uh, to come to a growth group this week. Can we use mockery and satire in our engagement with the world? It seems appropriate for Elijah. Well, why not us? Because Elijah is confident. He knows Baal is a fake. You see, Baal is a created God. He is a made-up God. He resembles a bit of creation. He looks like a human being because apparently he can go to the toilet or he can go for a journey. He might need waking up. He resembles a bit of creation because apparently he's something to do with storms. See, the real God, the creator God, can't be limited to one bit of his creation. Oh, sure, the creation can speak of him. A rock can tell us how our God is a rock. A lion can show us how our God is a lion. But none of those things can wrap up and fully comprehend all that God is. God is beyond the grasp of creation's full description. And so he can see when they talk about Baal, it's like, that is made up. That is absolutely made up. The real God is beyond us in power and wisdom and knowability. So he isn't surprised when Baal doesn't answer. And he's quite happy to point out, he said, so it's a nonsense. It's funny how often on the television people portray the Christian God, don't they? As an old man in the clouds. And actually, that's the one thing the Bible tells you. You cannot do that. He is beyond caricature. He is beyond creation because he is the creator. In fact, he is the one who gets to caricature everyone else. And all these other silly gods. <laughs> right? So Elijah's confident here. It raises a question for us, of course, do we have this kind of confidence to be able to critique and engage, humbly, of course, humbly, with other gods and other views? Because it looks so silly, doesn't it, this Baal business? But before we look, look down our noses at these prophets of Baal, I wonder if you can see, in all their behavior, as they're wailing around, as they're dancing and cutting themselves and all this kind of stuff as they're making a right old noise. I wonder whether you notice that actually Christians can sometimes be in danger of this sort of thing. Sometimes Christians fall for what we might call a kind of Christian Baalism. Treating God as if he were Baal, as if God needed to be waked up. As if somehow if we throw on the right events with the right noises and the right songs and the right amount of technology and the right lighting and the right smoke machines, God will be present. He'll answer our prayers. There'll be healings. If only the right things are in place. Sometimes Christians can treat the Lord as if he were Baal. How tragic is that? Well, here there is no answer from Baal because he's not real. And so Elijah beckons to the people. Come, come near. Come near. It's, it's, it's my turn. It's my turn now in verse 30. The contest is ramping up. Elijah is entering the ring. And so I suppose what you imagine is like a boxing match, you know. Elijah steps into the ring and he sort of faces up to his enemy. Now, he can't face up to Baal, can he? Because Baal isn't real. But he does face up to his 
real opponent. Who does Elijah face up to as he enters the ring? It's not Baal. It's the people. This passage, this battle, turns out hasn't really been about the Lord versus Baal, as if that was ever a real contest. This moment is all about the Lord versus the people's doubts. So Elijah faces up to them and says, come on, come here, have a look, have a look at this. Pay attention now. And you might think Elijah was getting them prepared to see the Lord's power. Um, you know, right, guys, okay, right, pay attention now, right? Because we've seen the fake God, now we're going to see the true God. So make sure you take off any flammable items of clothing and get your fire hydrants ready. And I'm expecting the flames to be about probably this wide, probably. Now, Elijah doesn't do that. The Lord's power will speak for itself. So Elijah doesn't actually do that. What does he do? Elijah beckons to the people. He says, take a look at it. Hey, look, there's an altar here. An altar that was broken down. How about we, how about we rebuild that? An altar to the Lord. It's almost as if he knew all along, yeah, Carmel would be a good place. Because it wasn't just a place of, uh, of Baal. It was also a place where there was an altar to the Lord, a place where sacrifices to the Lord could be made. So he uses this moment to remind the people who they are and who their God is. He takes 12 stones to rebuild the altar. 12, 12 stones for 12 sons of Jacob. For a people called Israel, because guess what? The Lord who is creator, God gave them that name. That's who you are. Do you remember that? Do you remember who you are? Remember the stories of the sacrifices and the rescues? Do you remember who you are? And he has these four jugs poured out of water. It's going to make the competition harder. But look at the four jugs. They're poured out three times, 12 jars. Do you remember who you are? 12 tribes, 12 jugs. And look at verse 36. And at that time, the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah came near and prayed. It's almost like Elijah has timed this whole thing. I'm going to step into the ring at just the time of the evening sacrifice. Twice we've heard him mention this business of the evening sacrifice. It's like, it's like Elijah knows that the people need a display of God's power for their double-mindedness. Yes. But they also need a reminder of who God is and how he cares for his people. How he is the God who rescues them. He is the God who hasn't given up on them. And that's what Elijah prays, right? Look at his prayer in verse 36. It's one of those prayers, I think, that's... Do you ever notice people do this? They pray to God, but you almost feel like they're praying to you as well, a kind of sideways prayer. It's kind of like Elijah's doing that here. Verse 36. Oh, Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, do you remember who you are? Do you remember who you are? Oh, Lord, let it be known that you are God in Israel, that I'm your servant, and I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O oh Lord, answer me. Why? That this people may know that you, O oh Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. That last verse, so important, verse 37. See, here's what the people need. They need to know not just that the Lord God is, is God in power, but they need to know that he means to turn their hearts back. That he wants to rescue sinners, that he wants a sacrifice for sin. He will accept a sacrifice for sin. He will rescue them. He's come to turn their hearts back. Elijah prays, would they know that? 
See, we're double-minded, aren't we? And sometimes we're double-minded because, like Baalism, there's stuff out there that kind of appeals to us, and we think, oh, that's more relevant, or something. But sometimes we're double-minded because maybe we don't trust God's power. I think that's true sometimes. But sometimes we're double-minded more because we don't think we can trust the Lord himself. That he doesn't care, that he doesn't love us, that he, he doesn't mean to have us. We're too sinful. Do you know what I mean? And yet Elijah has orchestrated this thing to happen on this mountain where the altar stands now. So that it can't just, so that it's not just a display of power, but it's also a sacrifice. See, here's the question. Will the Lord answer in power? Yes. But will the Lord still pursue his people? Will he say, no, nah, I don't think I'll have that sacrifice? Does he really want their hearts back? Well, this time there's no waiting around for hours. Look at verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. I told you the power would speak for itself, right? Absolutely nuked, isn't it? And Baal couldn't do anything. When all the people saw it, they fell on their face and said, here's the confidence, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The people's doubt has been turned to confidence. Their doubts have been blown away. And I take it that's supposed to happen to us here as well. As we see this display of power, our hearts should be blown away by this moment of fire from the one true God. He is God. I'll follow him. You know, fire in the Bible, it isn't just about power. Fire is also a symbol of God's judgment, of his justice. Fire is also a symbol of the fact that God has accepted a sacrifice. So we're to see here not just God's amazing power, but that God accepts a sacrifice for sinners. See, here's what we need in our double-mindedness. We need to see a display of God's power that saves people from sin. That there is a God who is not turning his back on sinners, but is coming to save them by means of a sacrifice. And so this display of power and fire, it points us onward, doesn't it, to Jesus. As he hung on the cross, we see there the full display of God's power. Jesus experienced the full fire of God's judgment. And the the empty tomb shows us that that sacrifice was accepted, that justice has been done. The Lord is God. He is God. He is creator. He is rescuer. He is savior. There at the cross, the Lord shows us not just the power, but his heart, his love, his rescue for us. Can you trust him? Are you double-minded this day? What do you need to see? Do you think you need to see power? Or do you really need to see the heart of God? Well, if you'd looked at the sacrifice that day, you'd have seen one prayer of Elijah's. One prayer. And zap, the sacrifice was taken. The Lord wants his people back. Look at the cross and you'll see just how much. There the Lord suffering the fire of God's judgment to save sinners. This is a rescue for double-minded people. 
This is a display of who God really is, that our hearts might be turned back to him. In our double-mindedness, we need the power of God and the heart of God. It's a rescue. And we see that in the, in the little details, of actually, of what follows. Um, immediately, the prophets of Baal are captured, and they're rounded up, and they're executed. Now, you say, that seems pretty, pretty brutal, there in verse 40. Um, but these prophets have colluded with the murder of the prophets of the Lord. The Lord is rescuing here through judgment, through ridding the world of evil. And this here is just a little preview of that. The Lord is rescuing. And there's more of that because King Ahab is sent up the mountain to eat and drink. Moses went up the mountain to eat and drink after the covenant was established. And it's like it's all being reset, you see. The Lord has rescued him people back to himself. The king is eating on the mountain again. And a servant is sent seven times up the mountain to look for rain. It's a bit like how the birds were sent seven times from the ark. It's like, have we been rescued? Have we been re-? The servant set up the mountain to look for rain, and the rain comes. You see, it's a rescue. The people have been saved. The drought is over. The sacrifice for sin has been made. And Ahab is sent, uh, uh, sent away. Elijah says, it's going to rain. It's going to rain really badly. Like flash floods. You want to get to safety. And so Ahab is sent onwards, and Elijah races ahead of him in his proper place in the king's court. Everything's made right again. How long will this last? Well, that's a question for another day. Come back next week. But see here, the Lord has come for his people stuck in doubt and double-mindedness. Sometimes people say, I wish the Lord would do this for me. You know, I'd love a little Mount Carmel. Wouldn't you love a little Mount Carmel experience? All of your own. You see here, it's not just some stunt. It's not just an expression of the Lord's power. It is a sacrifice, isn't it? Elijah has set it up so that it is a sacrifice on the altar. And you see, that is what we need to see. We need to see the full and final sacrifice for sin in our double-mindedness. We need to know that we are safe with Christ. We can trust him completely. We don't need a foot in two camps. We're safe with him. He's given everything to rescue us. We are there at the crossroads. And there we turn to look at the cross. And choose which way to go. If the Lord is God, then follow him. If the Lord is God, then trust him. That's where we stop today. That's where we're to go. Shall we pray? Loving Father, we want to confess in our hearts how So often we have been double-minded. We have said that you are God's, but we have not followed. We trusted in other things. Convict us this day, we ask, Father, of what those things are. Lay them on our hearts and let us cast them aside. Father, for where we've been double-minded, not thinking we can trust you. Thank you for the reminder this day that you have made a full and final, once for all, sacrifice for sin. That we are redeemed and rescued and we are safe with you. Help us therefore to put in you our all in all, knowing 
that you have come to turn our hearts back to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.